Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. It is Monday, July 15th. It's a little past 10.30 a.m. Central Time, and we're live out of a steamy Chicago. We've got the sun out, so that's good. So I hope wherever you are listening to today's podcast, you're enjoying something else that gives you warmth and comfort. Today, we're going to meet one of our Family Caregiver of the Year Award winners. Kara Guerrero, who cares for her brother, is going to join us to share her story about how she cares. Just a heads up that our Family Caregiver of the Year Award winners will be with us in person at our fourth annual National Caregiving Conference. You can meet them there if you come to Chicago. You can also meet them virtually. We do have a panel discussion with our award winners on Friday afternoon. That's part of our virtual broadcast. So if you can't make it to Chicago, you can still watch our conference from the comfort of your home or office, and our virtual broadcast is free. You can register virtually or to join us in Chicago by visiting caregiving.com. And just a heads up that if you're going to join us in Chicago, now is the time to register because our early bird registration rate ends August 31st. So you can save some money by registering this summer to join us in November in Chicago. Okay, so let's bring Kara on the line with us. Good morning, Kara. How are you? Good morning. Very well. Thank you, Denise. You were one of our award winners. And something that I love about this year's winners is that there is a spectrum of caregiving stories. And for you, your story began in caring, with your bro- caring for your brother when you both were young. I'm curious how, how, it, how you saw something happen with him and then what it was like for you to adjust to how his mental illness affected him and affected the family. Sure. And, you know, to be honest, it's really, you know, it's really about our whole family. Um, My brother, Rafe, is nine years older than I am, and I have two other siblings. I'm the youngest. Um, And so when I was, when I was little, Rafe was just, you know, a fun, exuberant, you know, active, you know, teenager as I, you know, when I remember him. Um, As he got older and he left for college, um, you know, there started to be things that you'd kind of hear about that you didn't really know what was going on because I was still, you know, a teen, preteen. And then by the time he got to the age of graduating from college, it seemed like there was really something that wasn't, there was something that my parents were really struggling with. And after he graduated from college, he moved home. And, and to be honest, it was, it was kind of scary um, because how he was behaving was pretty unusual um, and it seems that nobody really knew what to do. And in hindsight, it's kind of dumbfounding in that my brother was not the first member of our family to have a mental illness. But the sad thing about it, both then and today, is that a lot of people don't talk about mental illness. I think it's become more common, but it's unusual, it's scary. People are ashamed of their family member or of themselves. And so there's this kind of cone of silence that often develops around mental illness. And it often impacts an individual and a family when their loved one is away at college. It's that age of, you know, transition age youth where people 
get sick. Um, and so they're not always connected with the network of care that they have around themselves. Um, so I can't say that I purposefully ended up in the industry that I'm in, but a lot of it was trying to understand my family. I ended up with a, a bachelor's in psychology, I think in large part, because I just didn't understand what was going on. And it was important for me to, to, to understand his illness. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, my professional life has mirrored my search for understanding and my desire to educate not only my own family, that this wasn't a, a young man who was doing anything wrong or who didn't, you know, have will enough to take care of himself or do the things that you were supposed to be doing, that this was someone who was really sick. Um, and so as my career trajectory has progressed, working in the behavioral health care industry, uh, which translates to people with mental illness and addiction-related issues. Um, it's also really helped our family come together um, and support my brother in his illness and try to be advocates for his care. I've been shaking my head up and down, nodding in agreement with you, because I think something that you bring out is the shame around a, a disease like a mental illness and the, the judgment around, well, if he would just do this, this, and this, he would be okay without the recognition of, oh, my heavens, this is a disease. It's not mm -hmm. about that he just needs to get up and do a few things in the morning like meditation. And if he just got on a regular right. schedule, everything would be okay. It's this yes. lack of understanding. he could just pull himself up by his bootstraps, yes. Exactly. Stiff upper lip. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I mean, find for years, I remember, I remember thinking, you know, I, I, I couldn't figure out where the line was between he can't or won't, you know, and it's, it's hard to see because everything that's going on is happening in his head. And so I try to figure out, is this something that he, he won't do because he just doesn't want to, or he can't do because of his illness? Wow. And so how do you know? I think, honestly, as the years have progressed, I've come to have such an appreciation for how resilient my brother is. Um, and unfortunately, his story is, is a pretty sad one. I, I say that knowing that it's not the worst one in the years that I've been working as an advocate in the mental health world. There are so many tragic stories of families who've lost their loved one or they've been engaged in the criminal justice system which is sad. Um, as, as, as time has gone on, I've, I've come to have an appreciation for how resilient my brother is in that so much of it is in the can't world, that he works so hard to be the person he wants to be and to, I guess, hold himself together and be productive. But his illness is so severe that there are times when to be honest, it's telling him to do things that he knows are not good uh, or not right or not reasonable, and yet he just can't control it. And it makes me sad, and it makes me have much more compassion for him, um, and it, it makes me advocate for him with his clinicians and with my, our family. Um, but this is not a question of will. I think it's very similar in the world of addictions, that Yes, at some point in time, someone took their first drink. 
but it's a biological condition and it's so much more about the impact of biology on an individual than it is about lack of will. You know, it's so interesting what that insight about he can't versus he won't gives you. And it gives you compassion. And it also spurs you into action to ensure that people respect what's possible for him. And I love that you bring that into your advocacy work. It's been important for me. It's been it's been a journey. I I often wish I knew then what I knew know now. I mean, how many times do people say that <laughs> in life's journey all, all across the board? Um, but it's been important for me, both personally and professional, to try to share that story. Um, I don't I don't talk about my brother without his his okay. Um, he knows that I tell his story and he knows that I tell his story because I love him. And because unless we tell our stories, then people don't know, people don't know what happens and they don't know what to look for and they don't know where to find help and they don't know how to care for each other. And so um, I think my brother's proud of the fact that I am his advocate and that I'm looking out for him and that I'm, telling the story that he can't. And I hope at some point in time there's a day when he can be out there telling his own story. But until then, I'll, I'll carry his water and I'll make sure that people know um, what to look for, where to go, how to get help, and what to do. Because I think so many people are afraid to act because they just don't know. And what you create is that he remains seen. Because oftentimes yes. what happens is I think society wants to make us unseen if we're not considered to mm. be perfect. Yes. So you keep And we make seen. assumptions. We make assumptions yes. about people with mental illness or, you know, you think of the, you know, somewhat unwashed homeless person and you think obviously that person has made bad decisions or that person has done something wrong. But a lot of times it's just someone who's really struggling and they have no one which is why they're out there. Um, And so my brother is fortunate in that he has a family that has been able to surround him and assist him um, at times when he's needed and be his advocate. Um, But there are a lot of people who don't have my brother. And I think of all the struggles that we have trying to get him the care that he needs. And I think I'm just one person. He's just one person. What about all those other people that don't have a family like ours? And that empowers me to make sure that that we share, that we talk, that we do something, that we encourage other people to be stronger advocates, to act when they're afraid. Um, because if, if I don't do this, no one's going to. And that's part of what drives me every day. What's been the tough, toughest battle that you've encountered as you ensure that he receives the care and treatment that he deserves? That's a hard one. Um, I'll start off by saying that I think the people who work in the behavioral health care world, you know, people don't become social workers because they want to make a lot of money. They're people with heart and compassion. 
and yeah. they want to help. They wouldn't be doing the work that they do. I mean, you can make more as a manager at McDonald's than you can as a social worker in most organizations. Um, so I, I preface what I'm going to say next by saying I think everybody who has interacted with my brother over the years has cared. Um, I think they're hamstrung by a system that's held back by apathy, that the system has become so convoluted and there are so many intermediaries between the payer and the patient that there's, and particularly when you're talking about people with significant chronic illnesses, and I think that's not just in mental health care. It's anyone who's dealing with significant chronic illnesses. The healthcare world is used to taking care of healthcare things, but so much of what a person with chronic care needs needs is not healthcare. It's not a trip to the doctor's office. It's how do you get to the doctor's office because they can't drive themselves. Um, it's where are they living and how are they getting food and what social supports are they getting and how do they get to their social network, getting to church and, you know, having things every day that allow you to be able to have a, a valuable life, however you define it. And the healthcare system is not set up to do that. And so this world of all of the ancillary services and supports that someone needs to truly live well, whether it's a mental illness or some other condition, it's so disjointed in how that care is delivered and paid for. And while there are a lot of well-meaning people who work in the industry, there's next to no accountability. And there's no one responsible for the person. There's no single point of responsibility where you can call up and say, listen, this is what's going on with Rafe, my brother. This is what he needs, and it's your responsibility to fix it. Because all they do is point fingers at other parts of the system and say, this isn't part of what we do. You have to get in touch with so-and-so. And so my involvement with my brother, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's in Rhode Island. Uh, my mother's there every day, and Fortunately and unfortunately, her retirement has turned into 100% caregiving for the most part, being there. Um, how I interact with his care is about getting the system involved to provide him with what he needs, which is no small task. I spend between 5 and 15 hours a week just getting the right people on the phone and having regular phone calls and making sure that they act. And even then... So many days, I just throw up my hands in frustration, and those are the things that bother me the most. Is that I can't, I can't. It's not a matter of finding someone to pay. It's there's literally no one I can go to to get the thing done, to get him where he needs to be. Um, right now, he's waiting on, on a hospital bed to transfer him to one. He's been in the same institution since September of last year. Um, and he needs a different level of care now. And the bed has been open for 28 days. And yet the application for the organization that's going to provide his care to Medicaid to be approved hasn't been submitted yet, even though they've known this has been coming for months. And what do you do? Like, how do you move the system? How do you make things happen when there's no one responsible? And then there's just this utter lack of accountability and in some ways compassion. And those are the things that drive me crazy 
because it just seems like nobody cares. So what I wrote down when you were talking is system fatigue. And it seems like there's an apathy within the system because they themselves are always hitting a brick wall or just not able to get things done because the system works against them. But you as a family member and his advocate, you've got to experience system fatigue too, where you're just like, oh, my heavens, I can't believe this. Just that story you shared about how – how hard it is to just get him to where he needs to be. That's awful. How do you cope when you're just so tired of it? Right. That's, I mean, that, that's the culmination of about six months worth of work to get the right place identified and have him lined up to be available for the next bed. Um, And it can be exhausting. And I think the answer to your question around fatigue is that one, I have a family that has, that values the importance of all of us being involved. We all come from different perspectives and uh, some have been, some have understood him and his illness better than others. But I think at this point in time, we all get it and we're all there and we're all pushing for him. We have a weekly call with our family. We video conference, we check in with each other, we see who's talked to him lately, and and keep each other abreast of what's going on. Um, I have a, a wonderful husband and a phenomenal group of friends that I can talk to, and sometimes that's just blowing off steam. Um, <laughs> you'll laugh at this one. I have a beautiful English bulldog puppy, and her name is Emma, and she makes me smile every day, and she is definitely part of my support network. Um, but I also know that it's okay for me to turn it off. Um, I know there are people who are caregivers who can't. They literally have nowhere to go and no one to fall back on. Um, and I have tremendous amounts of compassion for folks who are in that kind of a situation. But I may, I understand that sometimes you just, you just got to turn it off for that day. You got to shut it down and come back to it tomorrow or, Literally, I'll take mental health days or hours out of my day. And if it's a really tough day, I'll go, I've gone to the movies in the middle of the day just to have my brain focused on something else because it's just too hard. So I think you have to balance the need to care and provide an advocate with the need to take care of yourself. And it sounds so trite that, you know, you can't take care of someone else unless you're taking care of yourself. Um, but you have to build in some me time. In, in the process because it's a long haul. I mean, we've been, we've been dealing with some pretty difficult circumstances with my brother going on three years at its worst, um, and there's no end in sight. So you have to be able to balance that out with, with turning it off a little bit every once in a while when you can. I love how you describe your family and the strategy around working together. I'm going to make an assumption that that just didn't happen overnight. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so I'm wondering how you figured out the strategy that works right for your family. To be honest, the sad thing is it took a really, really tragic event that coalesced the whole family 
to fully understand that my brother's really sick and that it's an illness. It's not, it's not him choosing to not get well or not do the things that he wants to. Um, and he's alive. He's still with us. He's still struggling. He's still pushing. But that was what it took for us to come together as a family and collectively decide that we have to support him together, that we can't do this with one person doing one thing and one person doing another, that the only way we're all going to make it through and hopefully be able to find a better place for him is to work together. And, you know, you find silver linings when horrible things happen. But that is one one thing that our family really came together. Um, and a nice part of that is my brother knows it. He knows that we're with him uh, and he knows that we support him. Yeah. Um, he's not an inactive player in all of this. You know, he... We all talk, you know, we communicate with him, talk to him as much as we can based on where we live. Um, But I think it gives my brother a real sense of comfort that he didn't have before. Um, That we're Mm -hmm. all on his side and we're all pushing for him and we're going to help him and we're going to get it better and we're going to keep fighting. There's a loneliness to a situation where it feels like everybody's not working together. And then there's something that's so powerful about this idea that you all belong because of your committed passion and compassion to really do your best, regardless of how difficult the situation is. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting that because the family is working together, you are giving each other peace of mind. You're giving it to yourself and you're giving it to each other. And I'm curious how you know when you have peace of mind. I think the peace of mind comes in a lot of ways of actually letting go of a lot. Um, My family is full of pretty strong-willed individuals. Um, I know I personally have struggled with, you know, just as it relates to my brother Rafe, thinking that certain people should have been doing something more or different or helping more or giving more or, um, you know, kind of living in this place where I felt like, you know, mom and I were working so hard And I just didn't understand why everybody else couldn't get on the same page. And I think the thing I've come to realize is that everybody does the best they can, that we all are at life in different places with different responsibilities and different levels of being able to be engaged. Um, And I think coming to a place where I've accepted that, that release of, hey, everybody's doing what they can allows me a peace of mind in that in some ways I'm doing everything that I can and I can't do everything. You know, I've chosen not to move back up to Rhode Island. Um, It would be a difficult situation with my marriage. Um, And to be honest, all of my husband's family is here in Charlotte and it's important for us to be here. Um, And that's okay. That's okay for me to have a life here in Charlotte. Um, 
it's okay for me to be happy. It's okay for me to go on vacations. It's okay to not constantly dwell in the I could have, should have, would have if I had done something differently. Um, And to be honest, I've told myself for years that one of the reasons I've been so involved in my brother's care is that I've met so many people who wish they had done something differently or wish they had known. And and in a stupid kind of way, I thought that I was protecting myself. That if a really bad thing happened, that I could say I did everything I could. Um, And the really bad thing happened, and the sad part about it is that I still thought that, and I still do. I wish I had done more. I wish I had said more. I wish I had wished. (laughs) And you can't control that, but it doesn't mean you don't stop. Yeah, it's interesting that we, during caregiving, really are faced with this letting go of the fact that we are not God, Mm. meaning that we don't have this amazing power to fix all situations. We are in a caregiving experience as humans, which means that right there we're limited in what we can do because we are imperfect. And I think that Mm -hmm. is hard for us to really accept and feel okay about, that we can't heal and take away Mm -hmm. a lot of pain and suffering. But what we can give is our presence. And our presence and our imperfection is what's so amazing. That's the best gift that we give and presence is there as an advocate as you've been describing I I, it's awesome that you have a great life you should have a great life you deserve a great life everyone does yes you know yeah and and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's a perfect life Right. In any way, shape, or form. You know, I I think another somewhat trite thing that that you can say is that, you know, you learn in the face of trauma and tragedy that the most important thing are the people around you and who you choose to spend your time with. Um, And it really makes life choices a lot simpler when you put them in that context. You know, I still... I still want to have a successful career and I still want to do things in the world to make the world a better place. Um, But I also realize I can have just as much an impact on individuals around me. And so where I spend Mm. my time and where I give of my energy are choices. They're either unconscious choices and I'm just doing and running around and, you know, living life or they're conscious choices. And you're making decisions every day around who you want to be with and what you want to do. And and I can't say I'm that thoughtful about it on a daily basis. But conceptually, um, it really does, does make life a lot simpler when you think of the people around you that you want to have an impact on. Absolutely. And I think a battle that we face during caregiving is the battle against bitterness. And the way mm. to win that battle is to keep your life. Right. It's you have hard to. to. I mean, even as a caregiver, your, yes. your life has to have meaning. Yes. Your life, not yes. the other, your, yes. your own life has to have purpose yes. and meaning. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things I fight for for my brother, that it's not just about him not being in the hospital. Like, the measure of success here is not him not being in the hospital. 
it's about him being able to have as full a life as possible and that the things people measure their lives by, you know, graduating from school, getting married, having kids, buying a house, those are all really important things. And it doesn't have anything to do with your state of health or how long you've been in the hospital. And that whatever those metrics are for my brother, he deserves to have them because he's a wonderful human being and he has so many gifts to contribute to the world. And they may be different from what I'm going to be doing, but that's okay because he and I are different. But it's just as important as a caregiver that, that I have a life and that I support my family as much as I can you know, in in doing the things that they want to do, that we can't just all be sad because bad things happened. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to leave it at that because there's nothing more powerful than what you just said. (laughs) So, Kara, this was awesome. Thank you so much. And I am so excited about meeting you in November. I am thrilled that you really appreciate it. The opportunity. Yeah, you're, I, and I hope that in our ability to share your story, that you feel that your advocacy, advocacy work is just elevated a little bit more because that's the goal. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, so much for listening. You'll want to meet Kara, obviously. <laughs> so come to Chicago <laughs> for our National Caregiving Conference. And you can also learn more about her on caregiving.com. We have information about our five Family Caregiver of the Year Award winners, and you'll definitely want to read more about her. Thanks again, Carol. Can't wait to see you in November. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we do truly love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.